have your downtown recovery and eat it too. This week, we've got a grab bag full of updates, new bridges, new energy programs, and old parking lots. Plus, maybe we can't eat our way to downtown recovery, but that won't stop us from trying. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 172. And I want to open this episode by reading a tweet, because very rarely do I ever get a tweet that's not some version of Troy, you're an idiot, or (laughs) quit the internet, or please just go away. Uh, No, this tweet came from uh, Chris on a bike, who said, quote, as someone who listens to American podcasts with pretty big production values, Speaking Municipally is still one of my favorites, and I sometimes repeat listen just to fill my space with the charisma of Mac and Troy. That's an amazing compliment. Thank you so much, Chris on a bike. Keep it coming. Just like we will keep the rapid fire coming. With wastewater COVID-19 counts rising in Edmonton and Calgary, Health Minister Jason Copping took to the airwaves this week to comfort Albertans. This is just a normal part of best spring ever runoff. He assures us everything is fine. The cooperators, an investment and insurance company, have appointed Don Iveson as an executive advisor to the board, leading some to question the investment strategy of acquiring assets that will only depreciate from here. The Alberta legislature debated on Tuesday a motion calling on Ottawa to stop carbon tax increases, and much to the surprise of astute political watchers who expected nothing to come as a result, Prime Minister Trudeau personally responded to the motion. A certified letter addressed to the Alberta legislature arrived on Wednesday from the office of the Prime Minister simply saying, quote, My alliance with Rachel decided to call it a carbon levy, guys. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this episode, we want to talk to you about ATB. The copy here says, at ATB, we make banking work for you. With expert and practical advice in everyday banking and investment planning expertise and management services with ATB Wealth, you can be confident that you're making smart choices when it comes to your money. We have a history of doing what's right for our clients, especially when times are tough, because ATB was built to help Albertans. Uh, For more information, you can visit ATB.com. And this is the kind of quality ad reads you get on Speaking Municipal. You provide (laughs) us with the text and we will read it. Nailed it, Troy. Nailed it. Just like we've nailed this downtown recovery. If you'll recall, Mayor Amarjeet Sohi gave the province a list of four or five items that he absolutely wanted to be funded. Uh, We heard things like affordable housing or transit or none of those things that matters. One of the things he said is we want five million for downtown recovery and we want the FIFA bid. We heard this week... The province is funding the FIFA bid, so good that we got our priorities on straight. But also, the province did kick in some money for downtown recovery. And Mac, has the downtown recovered? (laughs) Not yet. Uh, It is looking better. I mean, anecdotally, uh, there are more people on the street and in the the restaurants and the cafes and things like that. Careful saying there's more people on the street in a section about downtown recovery. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, there are more, there's more activity. There's more liveliness on downtown streets. Let's put it that way. It's not just Oilers games now where you see throngs of people. Well, maybe throngs of people is a strong word. No, Troy, in short, the recovery in downtown is not happening yet. But that hasn't stopped people from talking about it at every opportunity. And that's why I wanted to talk about it a little bit today. On Wednesday, Downtown Dining Week started. It's back. And they made a big deal of the fact that you can go in person again. In fact, most of their marketing so far seems to be geared toward, you know, people returning to the office 
which they're not doing in large numbers, and then going to eat in at restaurants. They've really deprioritized any discussion about takeout or, or anything like that. And I kind of get it, right? People are sick of the pandemic. They want to go back to some semblance of the way things were before. And that means going to eat in a restaurant. And there are no restrictions now. But I don't know, Troy, the sixth wave is going to be upon us. And it seems a little odd to be uh, throwing all of our eggs into this downtown dining week basket. One thing that has confused me throughout this, maybe it's just because I'm in a particular crevice of political watchers and Twitter wonks and give me my restrictions party people that I feel like Edmonton was a little bit different than the rest of the province. You know, we had the mask mandate Mm -hmm. longer than the rest of the province. We were the first ones in the province to bring in a mask mandate. I always felt like Edmontonians were a little bit more game to adapt to the realities of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is why I've found it in the past couple weeks a little bit, I don't know, off-putting and almost condescending the level with which businesses have committed to the we're absolutely back to normal in every way. You know, I would have expected Downtown Dining Week to encourage in-person dining if people want to do it, but also to include those takeout options because I know both you and I are a little bit reticent to go to a downtown restaurant right now. Yeah, I mean, we ate out today, my wife and I, uh, from two restaurants downtown for Downtown Dining Week, but we did takeout and we brought it home. And, you know, we have eaten in a restaurant recently, but, you know, we're mostly comfortable still doing takeout. And not everybody's offering that as an option. And the, the more surprising thing is I've heard some interviews with restaurateurs this week, and they talked about it as if restaurants have been closed completely for two years. And I know they know that that's not true. Obviously, restaurants were open at various points throughout the pandemic. But it's this sort of narrative that seems to be taking hold that I think you're touching on, right? That, oh my goodness, everything's been completely shut down. We've been under lockdown for two years and now it's completely open again. We've got to go out and enjoy it. And I don't think that's a fair or true representation of reality. But I don't want to just pick on the DBA. They're not the only ones here. We also heard recently from UDI, the Urban Development Institute, the Edmonton version of that. And they launched their new strategic plan. And they have six strategic pillars in this plan. It's all about attracting investment to the region. But the one that they chose to highlight is about downtown. And they said their members are rallying around downtown vibrancy. And the board chair for UDI Edmonton, Susan Keating, said, with many Edmontonians returning to work, one immediate call to action is for our members to come downtown to show their support for downtown businesses, shops, and restaurants. And we've seemed to have heard a lot of this lately. There's a lot of people saying, oh, we have to support our businesses. We have to come downtown. We got to get people here again. And and then I read this article the other day in The Atlantic, and it was talking a little bit about this. It's talking about return to work and how the return to work is not happening the way that everyone would like it to. Um, and there's this really interesting section in the article that totally applies to Edmonton, and I'm sure every other city right now, which is that if office occupancy doesn't recover to what it was pre-pandemic, then areas like our downtown will be less busy than they were before. There'll be less people, fewer people to go have lunch or go to happy hour or window shop or whatever. And the article says, for this reason, some of the most outspoken advocates for return to office these days aren't chief executives, but rather politicians and state officials. And they use New York as the example. And that's the case here too, I think. We're hearing from politicians and political leaders about 
how important it is to come downtown. But surely our strategy has got to be more than just plead with Edmontonians to come spend a little bit of their money in our downtown, no? One thing that really hammers true in Edmonton that may not be so applicable to other downtowns is when you're traveling, you go downtown. You know, you experience the downtown culture of wherever you are, Vancouver or Mm -hmm. London or Madrid. But if you go to Edmonton, I don't know. I'd recommend visitors go to White Ave before I recommend downtown. Downtown doesn't have the vibrancy except between like noon to 4 p.m. Monday through Friday when all the pre-pandemic office workers would flock to the streets and there'd be a bit of vibrancy right there, especially around like Rice Howard and 104th Street. There's a little bit of vibrancy downtown, but like for the most part, downtown has always been quite sterile outside of the office work environment. So to sell people as come downtown and come experience the culture downtown, without the office workers, it's just not there. We haven't built a downtown for vibrancy. So I don't know that politicians are going to convince people en masse to come to this place that's frankly bleak half the time. (laughs) I don't know if I'd put it in quite those terms. So (laughs) I mean, I think before the pandemic, the reality is you had about 70,000 people that work downtown on any given day. Yeah. And then after they go home, you've got about 14 or 15,000 people that live here. And this is also something that seems to be forgotten in all of our discussions about downtown is that it, it's actually our second most populated neighborhood. There's a lot of people that live here. And if you add up all the people in Oliver and the surrounding neighborhoods, there's a sizable residential population in this part of our city. So it's not just about people from the suburbs needing to be convinced to come in and support downtown. The other thing I'd say quickly about the the vibrancy bit is that I think our downtown actually was getting to be quite vibrant before the pandemic, especially compared to places like Calgary, for instance, where, you know, I would go to their downtown, it would really literally seemed like nothing was happening. There was quite a bit of activity, it seemed like, and it was it was growing in Edmonton. And now that's definitely subsided. It's most noticeable on game days. On Oilers game days, you see tons of people around with jerseys. You see people going into restaurants and things. It is one of those things where that actually has made a difference through this part of the pandemic, at least in terms of getting people downtown. I guess in fairness, Toronto's financial district is an example of a big city downtown that also gets very, very sterile after the office Mm -hmm. workers leave. So it's not a unique to Edmonton problem, perhaps a little bit hyperbolic and unfair there. It's happening in Manhattan too, right? All of the financial, you know, buildings there, offices with with few exceptions, like I think Goldman Sachs is the only one that's requiring it. You know, they're not filling up the way that they were before. And even if people are going back to work there or here in other cities, it's often now not five days a week. They might be doing some sort of a hybrid scenario. And so, you know, the number of people that are there at any given time can be quite a bit smaller than it was before. And, you know, there's talk in New York, at least, about some of those buildings being, you know, converted into residential or other uses. And that has happened a very tiny bit here. And there's been a little bit of a discussion about that, but we could see more of that too, which actually in the long run, wouldn't be such a bad thing, right? To have more people living here would be a good thing overall for downtown vibrancy. Absolutely. So short of politicians begging on Twitter and encouraging people to buy gift cards, what's actually being done 
to materially help downtown recover right now? Well, there are uh, campaigns like Downtown Dining Week, which are, you know, important. I'm not trying to slag them. It's a good thing that they are back and that they're encouraging people to come here. But the city itself has done some things right as part of its pandemic recovery. They have this Downtown Vibrancy Strategy Grant. And we've learned just today, actually, as we're recording this, that it has supported 15 projects for a total cost of $640,000. And it was able to leverage another $1.1 in investment. So that's a pretty good return, I guess. I don't know which 15 projects those are. We'll have to find out about that. And then there's also the Economic Incentive Construction Grant, which we talked about before, which was that, you know, in order to try and maintain some activity downtown, the city would offer grants to to developers who would start their projects in 2021. If they started it by the end of the year, they started construction that they could earn this grant. And the city has announced that they provided 10 of those agreements worth a total of $19 million to support construction downtown. And, you know, we have a train that's about to open downtown. And like there are still things happening downtown. There's still investment downtown, construction happening downtown. Construction happening downtown in Edmonton? (laughs) I don't buy it, Mac. (laughs) It's the never ending construction that is the problem, right? Well, downtown isn't the only place fighting for some vibrancy. This week, The president of the Ritchie Community League uh, started a Twitter thread, which turned into a journal article, which turned into a digital riot, I'll call, of people upset with the old Strathcona Farmer's Market parking lot. And good on the internet this week for fighting about this parking lot. This parking lot has frustrated me personally, and I'm sure you as well over the past couple of years. But it came to a breaking point this week with the journal questioning, what exactly is the city's plan? for this parking lot once the lease expires in 2025. First, just want to go back to something you said. It's caused you a lot of concern or problem. What exactly has it done? Because I think about (laughs) this parking lot as free, two-hour parking to go to Old Strathcona. If you're going to go there, you're going to drive, you're going to park there. Nobody's checking to see that you're going to the market. I agree. It's a completely horrible use of space. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But if you get over that, pretty good, no? Well, no, I would say. Actually, it's not. Uh, One, it is, as you mentioned, a blight on the neighborhood. It is is a Mm -hmm. pristine four-block section in one of the most vibrant places in the city. Sorry, downtown. (laughs) That, frankly, is wasted, but not only just waste. For people who live around that area, and I did too, walking that parking lot at night, even as like an athletic white dude was scary. Mm-hmm. That That is not a safe parking lot at night, primarily because it's only used for two hours on farmer's market days. But no, the main reason why I'm not even convinced that it's a good usage for that is because it's only free for farmer's market customers. We have said through this parking lot that the city is going to subsidize this one particular business. And don't get me wrong, I like the old Strathcona farmer's market, but I also like a lot of other businesses in that area who don't have city-sponsored free parking that is a blight on the neighborhood, who have to work with their clients and with the communities to develop solutions that benefit everyone. And frankly, I'm sick of the Old Strathcona's farmer market taking this beautiful asset that the city has given them for nothing and being, quite frankly, crotchety about their entitlement to it. Mm. Yeah, I definitely agree with the entitlement part. And, you know, the eight hours of parking, it's only one day a week, right? And then the rest of the time, you know, it doesn't support the vibrancy that you maybe get as a result of a lot of people going to the market and then going to other places around there as well that they do 
on a Saturday, right? I don't think this is a unique problem for the city. I mean, we've reported before about how significantly they subsidize the downtown farmer's market as well. Uh, The city seems to enjoy offering things for free, basically, to the farmer's markets. Uh, The one good thing that has happened about this parking lot, with this parking lot, is when the downtown market was considering moving and there was a discussion about, you know, if it could stay on 104th Street because of LRT construction, if it had to move. And there was this suggestion that perhaps we move it south a little bit. So it goes across Jasper Avenue. And people were freaking out about that. Like, oh my God, you're going to make people cross a busy street. We can't close Jasper Avenue. That can't happen. But we do it every single Saturday in Old Strathcona right? That road is still open. It's a freeway. There's tons of traffic and people cross there all the time. So it has illustrated that it can be possible to have things in these spaces that currently are for cars. But all of that aside, I agree, it is a horrible use of space and we should do something different with it. So is the city going to do something different with it? We don't know. The Old Strathcona Farmer's Market was very secretive about whether a lease renegotiation was up. The city, when asked about this, said they will be consulting Edmontonians about future uses for that space before the lease is renegotiated sometime next year, starting that process. Mm -hmm. Having been through the Mayor Fair lease renegotiation project where city council tried its absolute darndest to keep it secret and to prevent the public from commenting on it. I'm not super optimistic about it. So this is why I appreciate that the feet are being held to the fire early and often. We know the city's lease process. Uh, It can be pretty secretive and it can also be pretty punitively long. Uh, If we don't get ahead of it, suddenly we can be trapped for another 10 or 15 years. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing I noticed in the article that uh, was kind of interesting was Cherie Clausen, the executive director of the Old Strathcona Business Association, kind of sounded noncommittal about the whole thing. She said, quote, I think our perspective would be we want to have community engagement around public lands and how they are utilized. I think it is perfect timing to really look at the future of our city, end quote. So not really supportive of the market's perspective there, which, you know, could be a signal that some of the leadership in the area is open to a different use for that space. I mean, if I was part of the business association, which the majority will not be the market as they are one business, Mm. I'd be pretty frustrated that the city is subsidizing one specific business with this massive space. Why can't all Strathcona businesses get the benefit of free parking? These are things that I'd be telling my executive director. (laughs) With the lease process, changes can be slow and they can be difficult to move and not very adaptable. Vision Zero Street Lab was supposed to be a program that was very adaptable for developing quick solutions to traffic management problems that Edmontonians had been demanding for the past decade. And we've seen Vision Zero Street Lab put out things like little circular signs telling people to slow down, it's my neighborhood, or children crossing. We've seen a couple pylons be put out some places, but so far, Vision Zero Street Lab has been pretty low-key. This week, they really busted onto the scene with a survey and a consultation about the Vision Zero Street Lab project for Victoria Promenade. That's 100th Street, right after it sort of like forks north at the top of the hill at 116, and it overlooks the golf course. If you're downtown, you know the place. It dumps you onto this beautiful boulevard that has this gorgeous view, and then this one-way vehicle street that is at least 
two football fields wide and has free parking on one side. It's, it is a weird road that completely biases towards one use, vehicle use. So Vision Zero Street Lab proposed to change that in a way that wasn't very well received by most of the community. Yeah, they put out this survey with a few different options for consideration. They presented four options. One has got two possibilities to it, so it's really more like three options, with some benefits and trade-offs for how they might do this. So the first one has flex posts and a parking curb instead of traffic cones. The slight adjustment to that is to add curb extensions or parklets. There's another option, which is to have a protected one-way lane for people scooting and biking. And then the third option is, you know, a street with some traffic calming and diversion. Probably not a very good description of what these options are. If you look at the survey, they have helpful little pictures that show you what they are proposing. But the internet, as you say, was unhappy about these options. Conrad Nobert was tweeting about this, and his thread got quite a bit of traction, and he said, you know, this council won a strong mandate on a bike-friendly city, and instead here we have admin proposing a bike lane in a popular location that is clearly dangerous. And what was interesting to me about it is that when this kind of blew up on Twitter, you had people like Daniel Morin, who's the civics director for the Oliver Community League, basically say, like, we were approached for input, and we emphasized the importance of having protected lanes, like truly separated lanes to help people feel safe. But that's not what the city's put forward and we weren't involved in presenting the survey, which kind of made me wonder, like I thought Vision Zero Street Labs were supposed to be community-led initiatives, no? Yeah, the point of Vision Zero Street Lab was specifically for me, you know, 10 years ago when I was part of the community (laughs) league and we wanted to have traffic calming. It was for community leagues to actually have the ability to make quick visible change in their community. It's not about installing, you know, massive new bridges or anything or real infrastructure projects, but it was supposed to be adaptable and community driven. This seems like the city has tapped into, oh, Vision Zero Street Lab is good branding. What if Mm -hmm. we just apply this to our typical bad process? Maybe we can sneak it past (laughs) some people? Right. (laughs) I mean, I guess to be fair, at this point, it's just a survey, right? They're gathering some input. They haven't made a decision about what they're going to do here. But I think the point about uh, the options being proposed, feeling misaligned with the direction that I think has been pretty clear that we want to build a city that provides active transportation options for everyone. And that means making sure that everyone can feel safe using that infrastructure. So to have these options that don't align with that is kind of off-putting. To not include an option that has safe infrastructure indicates that city administration doesn't feel like that should be an option. And that Mm -hmm. is intensely problematic because then when the survey is presented to council as, well, from the survey, we have determined that Edmontonians don't want a safe option. I don't know what will happen next here, but I suspect this has gotten enough attention that councillors have picked up on this. And Mm -hmm. when this comes to council, I expect a little bit of a needling about it. So on one hand, I've put forward a thesis statement here that, you know, we've got these evil city planners from St. Albert who are nefariously twiddling their (laughs) thumbs as they try to destroy bike infrastructure all over the city. And... Unfortunately, that doesn't quite hold with the other item we want to talk about this week, which is the 100th Street Bridge, which is a new project to connect the top of the funicular with the sort of west side of downtown because there's currently that 
car gutter at the top of is it bellamy hill grierson i think right no grierson's the one that goes past the shaw conference center right what are Uh, hills named in mcdonald drive is that it yes by the fairmont (laughs) we really should know what it's called yeah 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 mcdougal McDougal. oh that's it mcdougal McDougal hill this is how much i drive (laughs) yes so it it would allow you might want to say that again no like you're gonna cut all that out right i don't know that i am (laughs) but i'll say it again anyway the 100 street bridge project would connect the top of the funicular with the west side of downtown so everything on top of that car gutter on the other side of the top of mcdougal hill anyone who has jaywalked across that top of that hill has done so at a very rapid pace and fearing for their life because it isn't a safe crossing. Rather than make it a safe crossing, the city has released designs for what are quite frankly gorgeous bridge options that overlook the river valley, have some form of either a suspended cabling structure or these massive wood timbers, unquestionably gorgeous signature bridges, and They're bike and pedestrian only. So someone at the city does want some good, safe options for people walking and cycling. Well, I'm going to take a different uh, approach here. I disagree that this is a good looking project. I mean, I guess objectively, sure, the design of this thing is somewhat attractive. Conrad Nobert also tweeted a thread about this, and I agree with a lot of what he said here. How much is this going to cost and where else could we be spending that money? That's, I guess, what you could say about any project. But the biggest thing about this is, he says, let's not pretend that the bridge would be pedestrian bike infrastructure. The only reason this design exists is so that we can keep cars flowing smoothly up that hill, up and down that hill. What we could do instead is not allow three lanes of cars to go up and down that hill at rapid speeds at any given time by installing a crossing on the top of the hill. And as a pedestrian, someone who's wanting to commute into the river valley or get in, you know, back downtown, it frustrates me to no end that pedestrians always have to go the long way around. When I get off the funicular, I just want to cross the street. Why do I now have to take this incredible detour on an admittedly attractive looking bridge? And maybe there'll be a good view, but I'm not out for a view. I'm trying to get to where I'm wanting to go. We prioritize getting from A to B for cars, and we never seem to do that for pedestrians, which is why I was quite frustrated to see this project. I agree with you, Troy. It's a good looking bridge. I just don't like the message that, that, that it sends and sort of the underlying intent of why it exists. It does not seem compatible with the kind of city that I think we want to build. I don't disagree about, you know, this is so beep, beep, car go fast. But if we accept the premise that in Edmonton, cars do beep, beep, go fast, it takes some astute city planners to say, okay, well, what can we get out of this? Because a crossing for a pedestrian, if we're saying this bridge costs $10 million and where else could we spend that other $10 million? Well, that's probably going to go to cars. Just looking at, city spending, cars or the police. Uh, Mm -hmm. Those are the two places where it will go. If you put it in a bridge that gives you a gorgeous view of everything, and think think back to when the Walterdale Bridge was being designed. People called it an expensive white elephant bridge that we didn't need these things. It is a signature bridge. I am glad we have it now. 
Right. The funicular, it didn't need to be a $30 million project with lookouts and the nice timber that it has, but I'm glad that it is. It's a gorgeous piece of infrastructure and it's a gorgeous piece of infrastructure for people that walk and cycle. So yeah, this bridge is born out of trauma. It was forged in the pits of darkness of car culture. But if what we get out of it is some world-class pedestrian infrastructure that gives us a view of our gorgeous river valley that we frankly can't see right now, I'm calling it a win. And I'm also calling it a win because while you say that you want to get off the funicular and just walk straight across, while cars want to free flow, I too as a cyclist want to free flow. That bridge would have no lights versus me having to wait at the lights to cross that street, which I don't know. I I like it. I like it. (laughs) Well, I mean, we could build a simpler thing. It doesn't need to be a crossing with a light. It could be a much simpler straight over the top of the road bridge. I'm sure there are some designers and developers out there who will explain why that's not possible. But I guess what I'm arguing for is, yeah, we should have nice, beautiful things, but they need to be functional. This is like the multi-million dollar bathroom that we built in Borden Park that is never open. (laughs) What is the point of building something that looks great if it's not actually functional? And I get that this bridge would allow you to walk. But back to my earlier point about, you know, treating pedestrians, oh, it's okay to make them go the long way. It's not a big deal that they have to cross the road. No, these things actually make an appreciable impact on the experience that someone has as a pedestrian. So when we make them go really far out of their way, it's not the right kind of message that we want to send, I think, if we're wanting to make active transportation the option that you choose first, not the fallback. We'll agree to disagree, I suppose, on this. I will choose to take my agreement to disagree on this gorgeous once-in-a-lifetime <laughs> lookout over the River Valley, and you can do it on one of the Calgary pedestrian overpasses over the Deerfoot Trail and <laughs> smoke in car fumes. But Fair agreeing enough. to disagree, of course, maturely. Yes, yes. <laughs> I want to end today with a bit of climate emergency because the city, in their ensuing and never-ending wisdom, has treated this climate emergency very seriously and implemented a new program, the Clean Energy Improvement Program, which had massive immediate uptake and is definitely going to change the climate for weight. Am I reading this right? There are going to be 40 applicants that had this program. (laughs) Mac, I was hearing rave things about this Clean Energy Improvement Program. What went wrong here? My favorite part about this, Troy, is... As you know, I pay pretty close attention to what's going on in Edmonton, and we get all the news releases. March 29th, applications open for Clean Energy Improvement Program. March 30th, overwhelming response to Clean Energy Improvement Program pilot is basically closed now. The problem here is that what is a very sensible idea, let's support people in making changes to their homes that will improve energy efficiency and help us lower our emissions is severely, severely underfunded. And instead of getting a whole bunch of these things, we're supporting, yeah, as you say, 40 people, basically. The city said they got, you know, so many pre-qualification applications within just the first two hours that basically the program is fully at capacity now, and they're going to try and explore ways to expand this. But I don't think we should have had to launch this, see that it's so busy, and then figure out that we should expand this. Why didn't they start with that? It's not also a novel problem. I can recall not too long ago, there was an e-bike rebate that the city of Edmonton launched and within a day had fully used up all of their allocated 
<laughs> Enjoy that, Twitter listener. I said, allocated. <laughs> they had used up all of their funding for the program within a couple days, and they threw their hands up in the air and they said, oh, who knew people wanted e-bikes who knew people wanted green infrastructure who knew well they knew they, they knew because they'd seen the success of these programs all over and they'd seen the pre-demand and they didn't learn from the e-bike rebate program instead they created a program that they planned to support 80 applicants in a city of a million people they thought you know 80 people are probably looking to upgrade their house with better green infrastructure. It's shocking. I will give the, uh, cut them a bit of slack, I guess, right? This is a program that is... Probably a pilot. Complicated. Yeah, it is a pilot. You're right. It's a two-year pilot. It's complicated. It's administered by Alberta municipalities. It's part of this other funding source. You know, the city gets a loan from FCM to do this. Like, there's, it's, co it's complicated. It's not like council just voted and approved and we're spending city money to do this, right? But that is no excuse <laughs> for, you know, recognizing that there are a lot of people that would take advantage of this if we made it possible and easy for them to do so. <laughs> and doing so might actually help us with our climate change goals. It's interesting that you mentioned make it easy to do so, because I am currently in the process of doing some energy efficient upgrades to my basement. I the previous homeowner did not uh, understand the concept of insulation. So that has been cold and frustrating to me as a homeowner. So I figured now's the time to make some energy efficient upgrades and insulate my basement. So I mm -hmm. went looking for programs like this that support energy efficiency. The fact of the matter is I'm in a relatively small house, um, which has some efficiency benefits, but the cost of my renovations are relatively low. To do an entire basement, it's under $10,000 total. The cost to apply for this program, because it's an arduous process and an expensive process, would actually be more than I would get in the rebate. Uh, because to apply for this program, you don't just fill out a piece of paperwork. You need to have a full home energy audit done. This is a process that costs five to $800 and requires a professional to come in. Those professionals are booked out months in advance, by the way. So if you wanted to start a project soon before the construction rush, sorry, you can't. They need to evaluate after the project is completed. There's more costs associated with that. There's forms, there's bureaucracy. It is a nightmare to actually participate in this project and to be worth it if I was, for example, rich and installing large amounts of solar panels and I had a $35,000 or $40,000 job, then the rebate would be larger. But that is really just a wealth transfer to the people who are more well off and probably could afford to do this without the rebate. It doesn't help the people who wouldn't do it otherwise. And in fact, the city said basically that. They were expecting an average investment of around $15,000, but instead the average investment of applicants was $35,000. If I'm reading this right, in the day that the program opened, they got a full subscription of people ready to drop 35K. Yeah. I don't know about you, Mac. I don't have 35K just liquid to be thrown around on a whim. And I'm not sure those people are the people that we need to be subsidizing. Well, I hope the lesson that they can take away from this is that there's demand for programs like this, and we should try and broaden them and uh, really encourage them to be a, a significant part of our energy transition strategy and not just a, uh, a thing for rich people. If you're a commercial property owner, good news, 20 <laughs> of you 
can get access to the pilot <laughs> for commercial properties later this year. Commercial property owners with the Clean Energy Improvement Program, you can probably just do a meetup. Even downtown dining week, meet up at a downtown restaurant, you'll fit inside. <laughs> if you were to take advantage of some of these energy efficiency upgrades, you might pay less to your power provider, which you could then switch to Park Power. Yeah, this episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. And sorry, Park Power, that we're encouraging customers to send you less money, but climate emergency be what it be, we want to pay our power companies less. Park Power offers internet, electricity, and natural gas. So once you're energy efficient in your home, you can work from home and then spend more money on the internet. There you go, Park Power. We're sending more people your way. In Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you switch providers, nothing changes about the deliveries of these utilities to your home or business. If you've already got an existing contract, you're going to want to find out the terms of that contract before leaving. But if you don't, then it's really easier than ever to sign up for Park Power. You as the consumer have the choice of who you pay your bills to. So why not choose your friendly local utilities provider? You can learn more at parkpower.ca. Well, Mac, we're out of time. We had a nice little grab bag of topics this week. That was fun. COVID didn't get mentioned. Um, oh. Maybe Jason Kenny was right. Pandemic over. I guess so. It didn't come up once. You're right. Oh, Amazing. wait. No, it did. We we talked about being uncomfortable eating dining downtown. Yeah. Dining downtown. We, we talked about it. I'm sorry, Mac. Oh, I lied. We still can't get away from it. There you go. Uh, I guess pandemic, not over. Sorry, listener. Hey, you'll have to live in this pandemic reality for another week. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. municipally.